Okay, thank you. Well, good morning, everybody. If you are going to join us for Bible class, come on in. For our youth, we would like to extend a very warm welcome to you. Abe is gone, and so please come and join with us. We're looking forward to having you with us today. If you're out in the foyer, come on in and grab a seat. Be sure to grab a study guide off of the back chair back here as you get settled in. We are um, we are transitioning in between series, and I wanted to take a couple of weeks to talk about uh, talk about a topic that has been super super relevant um, in for me personally, also in multiple discipleship and counseling relationships. And as I continue to interact with people, um, I I think that it is more and more relevant than than we realize the issue of shame and how how shame affects us and how we respond to shame and i think this is actually a really really significant issue so while we're transitioning between series i want to take a couple weeks and talk about this issue how do we recognize and respond to shame how do we recognize and respond to shame and and we won't be able to do a real thorough treatment of the subject in a couple of weeks, but we can we can key in on some important basic things that help us see and respond to shame in a in a biblical gospel centered way. Before we jump in, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for who you are, for all that you've done, and we thank you for revealing yourself to us. We thank you, God, that you've made yourself known in your word and that you have drawn us to yourself and you've given us an opportunity this morning to know more of you. And, and Lord, we pray for your help. Um, Lord, we are a group of needy people and I am a needy teacher this morning and you are the one that we need. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd be at work among us. God, that you would show us what it is that you would like to say to us in your word. And uh, God, specifically, as we... Uh, discuss the topic of shame, would you help us to think your thoughts about this? And would you grow us in our capacity to see and respond to shame rightly as individuals, but also as a community, as we care for each other? We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen? Okay. All right. Getting started. If you have a study guide, there's, there's two sides to it. We've got some warm-up questions to get us thinking about this. If you don't have a study guide, they're, they're back over here. Um, I'd encourage you to grab one. First, first warm-up or getting started question here is, I'd like you to think about a time when you were feeling shame. I'm not asking you to volunteer what that was. So not now anyway. I'm available to talk if you need to. But um, another time perhaps. So think about a time when you were feeling shame. Let's talk about what that feels like. What does shame feel like? Feels bad? What kind of bad are we talking about? Shame is humiliating, yes? Feel ugly, yeah. Feel like hiding? Feel like you want to cover it? Yeah? 
Is that a hand raised or a head scratch? Head scratch. I see a lot of head scratching when I teach. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. What else? Feel dirty? Yeah. Inferior? Unimportant? Worthless? Cast out? Defiled? Unacceptable? Overseen? Insignificant? Every, oh. Overseen, so exposed. Exposed. Yep. Everybody can, everybody can see, and I don't like what they see. Yeah. Even if they don't see it, shame says somebody sees it. I feel seen. I feel seen in a way that I don't want to be seen. Okay. What are some common responses to shame? How does that, how does that affect us? So when you, oh, go ahead, Mike. Isolation? Yep. Escapism. So what kind of, what, what do we mean by escapism? Yeah. <laughs> Don't say amen. <laughs> yeah. So be it. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. So escapism, I I do not like being exposed, uncovered, being seen like this. I want to get away from that. And we've got a variety of ways of doing that. Through busyness, through pleasure seeking, through overeating. The the list could go on, right? Sometimes they're overtly sinful ways. Sometimes they're pretty honorable, noble ways. At least they seem like it and feel like it. But, but we, we really want to get out from underneath that sense of being exposed. And so we'll pursue something. What else? Don? Yeah. Bolster our resume with thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Yeah. Oh, we name drop like I know, you know, Mike Lee, and that somehow brings my my street cred. Up. Nate, yeah, shame shame has a way of of causing us. One of the one of our options for dealing with it is to to turn to others with a criticism and put others down. That's obviously not the biblical way of dealing with that, which which we're going to get to, but absolutely. Don? Yeah. Cover it up with humor. Turn it into a joke. Poke fun at ourselves or circumstances. Yeah. Sarcasm. Yep. Hard work or moral effort sometimes. So if I feel ashamed, man, if I can... If I could really put my nose to the grindstone and and um, tip the scales the other way through some hard work or moral effort, that's one of the responses. Other times it can just hold you hostage and feel totally ineffective and afraid to afraid to speak, afraid to act, afraid to engage. Um, somebody earlier said withdrawal. 
Question three, under getting started. So we've talked about what shame feels like. We've talked about common responses that we see with shame. Let's start thinking about this. Is it possible for our shame sensors, our shame sensors to be broken or fallible? In other words, are there times when you feel shame but shouldn't? And are there times when we don't feel shame but we should? Can your shame sensors be busted? I got a yes. We have an example. Yeah, so so you've answered you've answered both here. It is possible that don't feel shame and we should. So when we're sinning, so when I'm selfish and inconsiderate of my wife and that doesn't bother me, that should bother me. There should there should be a shame related to that that has a certain effect on me, and we'll talk about that today. But then there are other times when when we feel shame not connected to that. And, and and shouldn't feel that shame. It's an accusation um, from from Satan, from the accuser, the slander, um, something that's self-imposed or imposed by other people that can take shape in a variety of ways. Give me an example of of something that uh, you might feel ashamed of but shouldn't. Yeah. Yeah, feel feel ashamed for um, the perception that you've offended or hurt somebody in sharing the gospel when we shouldn't feel shame. You bet. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the troubling things about shame is that uh, it's really easy to believe what it says um, even when it's not telling the truth. And it takes some heart exegesis. It takes some work to try to understand whether shame is telling the truth or not. And then and then that helps us think about how to how to deal with that. Yeah. So so. When a child has a distorted framework that's been that's been taught to them about what should or shouldn't make them feel bad, I think there there are some other ways that that this is really really relevant for us. Um, if somebody tends towards a, a moralistic way of thinking, somebody like me who struggled with that, if I um, if I slept in on the morning, it wouldn't matter if I missed um, if I didn't sleep well for a week, and and then finally got some extra sleep and slept in. If I wake up a little late, the minute I hit the ground, I start going, this day is already shot. I've, I've already I've already failed to do what I should have done between the hours of 5 and 8.30, and here we are um, starting off behind, and, and I'm headed down a trajectory of thinking. Started with um, broken shame sensor here, 
in, in that particular case, shouldn't feel shame for that, but can be tempted towards that. Um, minorities. Um, and, and this can be a um, racial minority. You could be a single in a church with a bunch of married people and feel very, very different, feel very, feel cast out, feel marginalized, and feel a sense of shame because not the same as other people. So those are, those are examples of um, circumstances where we might put, might feel shame, but shouldn't feel shame. Are guilt and shame the same thing? Question four. Are guilt and shame the same thing? No, not necessarily. Help me out. Uh-huh. I think that's good, Dan. Adam. Yeah. Yeah, good. So we're going to we're going to see that there's definitely an overlap. These things can be very, very closely related. In fact, they, they intersect at a point that's right and good. So there, there is a point where what we are actually guilty for results in a feeling of shame, and that shame tells the truth. But guilt and shame aren't always the same thing. A, help, a helpful way to think about this, um, Ed Welch said, guilt is something that takes place in the courtroom. Guilt is something that takes place in the courtroom where you are actually morally answerable for, for what you have done um, as being right or wrong, and you rightly stand condemned for it and should recognize that. In that case, shame tells the truth. On the other hand, shame is something that, that can happen outside of that, that legal standing of guilty, and it doesn't always tell the truth. It can happen in a community, um, and it can happen when you're... Shame sensors are broken. We've already answered question five. Is shame ever a good thing? We've, we've hinted at this, um, that shame is a good thing when it's telling the truth about sin. And we'll, we'll dig into that a little bit more. Kelly. Thank you. Guilt is objective. This is reality. And shame is subjective. This is the way that I feel. That may be telling the truth about what is objective, and it may not be. Yep. Thank you, Kelly. Let's give a let's give a definition. Definition. It's like definition, but it's it's when you can't enunciate. Yeah. So, see, I feel ashamed for my. Okay. Oh. It just happened. It just happened. <laughs> yeah yep that wasn't a setup either see i told you this was relevant let's let's define shame you need two definitions that that 
tell a similar story here, but I think are helpful for us, okay? Shame defined is a painful, we might say guilty feeling due to having done or experienced something disgraceful. A painful or guilty feeling due to having done or experienced something disgraceful. It's the feeling of being exposed, vulnerable, and in desperate need of covering, protection, or cleansing. That speaks to everything you guys said earlier when you were talking about how shame feels. The feeling of being exposed, vulnerable, and in desperate need of covering, protection, or cleansing. Okay? We're going to get into a text here in just a minute and, and look at a case study of, of a particular kind of shame. But before we do that, I want to do two things. I want to look at some potential signs of shame. And then I want to look at two different categories of shame. The potential signs of shame could be in either one of those categories. So we're talking about shame in general, either the shame that tells the truth or the shame that's telling a lie. When we look at some potential signs of shame and by looking at that, I want us to be thinking about it as how is shame speaking to us and how can we, how can we learn to recognize that in our own heart and, and in our relationships with others, within our family and discipleship relationships, when we hear shame speaking to learn to be able to recognize it and then that's going to help us know what to do next. So I think, I think frequently I see in my life and in the lives of people that I walk with that shame is speaking, shame is doing its thing, and I often don't listen, and it's often because I'm not recognizing it. I'm thinking of it as something else. I'm not, I'm not hearing what it's saying, and my failure to recognize it often leads to a failure to appropriate gospel truth and deal with it in a biblical way. So we need to learn to hear what shame is saying. So I'm going to go through a list and with the with, understand that I'm saying these are potential signs of shame, knowing that some of these can have other causes. These may be the ways that shame speaks. So um, going down the list, varying degrees of self-pity can be a sign of shame. Perfectionism or legalism. This, this trying to take control of getting things right and just right down to a T. Anxiety or worry. General irritability. Well, I found that to be so true with me. Oftentimes my, my irritability is a sign that I feel, I feel ashamed, guilty, dirty. I, I, I have, I have a problem that hasn't been addressed. Indulging ven, vengeful thoughts. Actions, anger, or bitterness, wallowing in despair, or persistent self-doubt. Shame often says you have reason to doubt yourself. You have reason to be in despair. Addictive behaviors, addictive behaviors, self-sabotage or self-injury. Uh, at the at the heart of that, and this is related to the next one: mental or verbal self-deprecation. So the, the self-injurer, the one who physically harms himself, is doing the same thing as the one who self-deprecates and says, I'm just worthless. I just know I have nothing good to offer. I just, I'm just, man, I'm so ugly. I'm so terrible. I'm a bad dad. I'm a bad mom. I'm a bad sister. Man, I stink at this, and I'm always picked last, and why bother? And we're, we're 
harming ourselves, giving ourselves a lashing. Escapism or pursuing relief in in pleasure-seeking. Social discomfort or withdrawal from people. Boy, when you feel exposed, you want to hide, right? Rejecting God. Doubting God's existence, love, or acceptance. Questioning God's goodness and His sovereignty. A note to be thinking about. It, you, you ever interact with somebody and you, you share the gospel with them and they've, they've rejected God and they say they doubt the existence of God? How can, a, how, can a, um, how can God be good and allow the things that He's allowed? Um, what do we do when we hear that? We, we spring into um, apologetics mode and uh, give them a case for intelligent design uh, and, and we give them a case for um, why we could debunk philosophical naturalism and 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 you know what they don't give a rip about that they need the gospel in most of those cases and they're racked with shame and cannot believe that god loves them or would save them and and they need to hear about the cross i'm not saying the other things are irrelevant but they don't give a rip about that when they're loaded down with shame and and a significant amount of time this pushing god away is related to this perception of I am filthy, dirty, I've done wrong, I'm guilty, I'm exposed, and I need to hide from him. I need to hide from him. And and that ought to shape the way we think about those conversations. So that that may not be everything, and as I said, some of those things can result from from other causes, but do you hear what happens in your head and in your heart sometimes when I go down that list? Do you hear anything going on in you as we work through that list at times? And if you do, I want as we have this conversation this week and next week, I want you to consider the possibility that that, that is shame speaking. And, and let's figure out what kind of shame that is and what we do about it. And then in doing that, Oh, I hope, I hope we're always thinking this way, by the way, that as God is at work in you to do that, that, that that overflows into the lives of other people. So that when you, when you hear and see various kinds of shame expressed, you're able to address it in a, in a gospel centered way. So let's move on and let's think about two different categories of shame. There, there, you could probably, um, develop more nuanced categories. This is just two, Two general, helpful categories for us to think about. Um, the first category is sin shame on the left-hand side. Sin shame. Shame related to sin. This follows your sinful actions. This is because of something that you did, and it should be believed. It should be believed. It's the consequence of actual guilt. It's the subjective feeling that results from an objective guilt. It's right and it's true. Are you with me? It's right and it's true. Sin shame is a mercy from God designed to drive us to God. Sin shame is a mercy from God designed to drive us to God. It leads us to receiving God's free pardon in Jesus. Okay? And it's no longer necessary after repentance. It's no longer necessary after, after confessing and turning to, to Christ in repentant faith and acknowledging that His death fully atoned for that sin, and His, His blood covers that, 
There is no longer a debt to be paid. And so repentant faith allows you to set that aside. And, and that subjective feeling of shame, we say that that's no longer relevant now because my objective guilt had an objective solution. There was an objective, atoning, literal person. Um, we celebrate communion today. Uh, a man who stood in our place and, and paid our penalty on the cross, real body broken, real blood shed, real solution for a real problem. That's good news. So, so this sin-shame requires a solution outside of us, which is to look to Christ. Everybody with me so far? Okay. Another category of shame is provoked shame. Provoked shame. You, you could call this something else. You could call this false guilt. You could call it something else. We're going to use the terminology provoked shame. Provoked shame follows accepting blame or failure that is unrelated to your sin. Now, accepting is a key word there. You're saying, I agree that I am to blame for failure that is unrelated to my sin. Provoked shame should be rejected. Provoked shame should be rejected. Provoked shame wrongly condemns you for something you're not guilty of. It can be from accepting the blame for the sins of others. It can be from accepting the blame for something done to you. So, so you you know of um, you know of people who have been um, abused or terribly mistreated. And, and they take upon themselves shame and a sense of guilt for having been raped, for having been molested, for having been beaten. You fill in the blank. Um, and, and they take that upon themselves and sometimes injure themselves or um, verbally tear themselves down or withdraw from other people. That's a shame that we accept blame or guilt for something that somebody else has done. This can also just be from broken shame sensors. When I say broken shame sensors, I'm using a term that I, that I think is helpful, but just to be clear, um, I don't mean that we're a victim of bro- having our sensors broken. Um, we are willfully thinking a certain way. We're wanting certain things. When I feel shame in the morning because I overslept on a day, it's because I really want to be commended for all the work that I got done that day. My framework for what should make me valuable is wrong. That's what I mean by a broken Shame sensor. Are you with me? Okay. Like sin shame, provoke shame requires a solution outside of us, which is to look to Christ. Okay. So the, these are two categories of shame. We only have time to dig into one of these today, and, and we'll dig into the other next week. And this is, what I, this is where I want to start. Let's look at a sin shame. Flip your, your sheet over. Let's look at a sin shame case study with Adam and Eve in Genesis 2, 15 through Genesis 3:13. Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read from verse 15 through verse 13 and then we're going to work through some questions together. Beginning of verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it, to cultivate it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, "You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die." The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. And all the women in the church said, amen. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds, the 
of the air, all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they'll be one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. That's where we're going to stop. Okay. Question six on your study guide. Thinking back to chapter 2, verse 25, what does it mean that Adam and Eve were both naked and felt no shame before the fall? What's that? Moral innocence. They were in a state of moral innocence. Yes. Yes. So let's let's think about that some more. That's right, Randy. Um, what do we what do we mean by they felt no shame? Moral innocence would be the courtroom standing, and shame would be the subjective feeling that results from that objective standing. So so what are we saying when they they felt no shame? No guilt. Yep. No objective guilt. No need to hide, no need to protect, no need to cover up. So this is both literal and figurative. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were completely exposed in the sense that they were physically bare and they felt no guilty or disgraceful feelings because of it. But, but... And we're, we're uncomfortable post-fall just saying that. But they were, they were also exposed in the sense that they were completely known, completely seen, Tammy, as you were saying earlier, without feeling the need for self-protection. Completely known, completely seen, without feeling the need for self-protection. I was reading Psalm 139 um, this morning in, in the first six verses of Psalm 139. Lord, you, you know absolutely everything about me. You know my coming and my going, my lying down, my getting up. You perceive my thoughts from afar. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it. And I'm like, God, you know it and you love me? Oh my goodness. And so that kind of being known and yet feeling no need for self-protection or a covering, wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that be so sweet to have have 
such a clean conscience that you could confidently say you could know and see anything and everything, and I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. I don't need cleansing, and I don't need protection. Okay, question seven. What does it mean in Genesis 3-7 that they realized they were naked after the sin? Yeah, this is good, Peg. This is good. So it's not as though they were unaware of the fact that they were unclothed before, but for the first time, that's been a problem. Now for the first time, that's a problem. They were naked and felt no shame, but now they're naked and they feel a sense of shame. Their their shame is telling them a story of the reality of their guilt and their defilement, and they feel like they um, they need protection they felt disgraceful and and they needed a covering so why what i think i think we've answered question eight why are they feeling this way because it's sin shame it's telling the truth about their defilement randy as you said they went from this moral innocence to no longer being morally innocent they've they've been defiled they're aware of the fact that they've sinned their conscience is telling them that they're unpresentable and that's an important word. Their conscience is telling them that they are unpresentable. They need a covering. So let's think about verses 7 through 8. How did Adam and Eve try to solve the problem of their sin shame? They tried to cover themselves? What did they try to cover themselves with? Fig leaves. Okay. What else did they do? They hid. Man, I don't know if this leaf is going to do the trick. <laughs> we, 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 better, we better hide. What's wrong with these attempts to solve the problem? Yeah. Yeah. God's everywhere. You're not actually going to be able to hide from him. Yeah. Ask Jonah. There we go. Okay, we they're not actually doing anything about the objective problem. So they're addressing the subjective feeling of shame by making a temporary and ineffective covering and a hiding that doesn't work because you can't hide from God. Um, this is a this is a man-centered solution aimed at the subjective feeling and doesn't do anything about the the objective reality. All right. What are some what are some examples of how we might try to solve the problem of our sin shame in similar ways? Don
Defense mechanisms, developing a self-righteousness to try to stand in, in defense of the reality of condemnation. You bet. What else? What are some other fig leaves that we try to put on? Comparing ourselves with others? Yeah. 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 Connected to what Don was saying, we create a sense of self-righteousness to, to try to deal with that feeling. Yeah, you bet. I had good reason for that. It wasn't that bad, yeah? Or um, this, is where, this is where we don't believe sin, shame sometimes, and we look around horizontally and we say, hey, everybody's doing it. There's a, there's a rationalization technique. It's actually, we, we um, rely more on the subjective feeling. Yeah? Yeah. 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 When when we start to we start to uh, cling to other solutions and become convinced that those temporary solutions that don't ab- address the objective reality, when we start to become convinced that they are the solution, it can be hard to it can be hard to undo that way of thinking. And uh, that's that's part of why we're talking about what we're talking about. But some of our fig leaves might be other good works. So. Let's think about this. Um, busyness, um, spiritual disciplines, right? Ooh, got me, huh? Um, I can try to cover up for a sense of shame by doing things that are morally good and even religious or spiritual. Our hiding might be withdrawal. Um, our hiding might be seen in our depression. It might be seen in other forms of, of disengaging, okay? We are not up to anything new, right? We've just made, we've got different leaves and different hiding, but we're not up to anything new um, when we deal with our shame the wrong way. All right, let's look at question 10. How did Adam and Eve respond when God pointed out the objective reality of their guilt in verses 12 through 13? Yeah, took the blame off of himself. Yep, yep, she did it. What else do we see going on there? Yeah. The woman you gave me. Yeah, yeah. Let's not miss that. He does throw Eve under the bus, but makes God the bus driver. Yeah. Yeah. What did, what did Eve do? The devil made me do it. Right? Yeah. So, blame shifting. Right? They're, they're shifting the blame. So, let's talk about some of the ways that we might face a similar temptation when our sinfulness is exposed. How does that, how does that take shape? 
We make excuses. Yeah. Anything but me, right? Yeah. So what kind of excuses what kind of excuses can we be making? Good intentions? Yeah. 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 Everyone everyone else is doing it. Yeah. So within a community that says it's not something you should feel shame for, um, all of a sudden what we should feel shame for, we can um we can we can believe that lie. My dad, my mom, genetics. Yeah. I was born I was born this way. It's who I am. Yeah. John three. You need to be born again. What else? Ooh, so to um, take the blame, take the blame for what I've done in a self-righteous way, and um, but without actually repenting and turning to Christ. Yeah, yeah, and that'll be when we start talking about the solution. That issue is going to surface um, a little more clearly. A couple key areas we, we've touched on here that I think are super, super relevant. Um, we're tempted to say it's because of something that happened to me. Okay? So parents, the way I was or wasn't nurtured, examples that I saw, something I was exposed to, another super common thing, and I know um, sorting this out can be dicey, but um, mental health can sometimes be a, a blame shift, a, a direction to shift blame when we're actually struggling with manifestation of sin. So that's not to undermine the reality that there are legitimate mental health issues that need to be addressed at times. Um, but but we, we've got to be careful. We've got to be very, very careful. So we're in a culture that, that is increasingly saying sin doesn't exist and sin's being classified as disorder and disorders being connected to um, a mental health issue, and that may not even be an issue of right or wrong. Um, and so there's a way that we we're, our shame is telling us something, but when we shift the blame that direction, um, we're, not, we're not thinking about this in the right way. So what are some of the results of doing this? What, what's going to happen if we're shifting the blame? 10B. You're going to hurt other people. I don't know if they had dog houses in Genesis 3, but if they did, Adam should have been in one, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we, we joke about that, but that's so real. It, it, um, it broke my heart a, uh, a few weeks ago. We were, um, we're having, we're having a, a family worship time, family devotion time, and uh, I'm a little chippy with the kids, and it's been a, well, here I am, shifting blame. It's been a long day. <laughs> okay, uh, hard week. Oh man, I'm up to it already. And um, and I I kind of did one of these. All right, guys, what do I need to do to get you to pay attention? 
And Sammy goes, you could be more patient, Dad. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, man. So, but, but I, I subtly, sometimes I'm saying, so my manifestation of impatience is your fault, thinkers. You shouldn't be making this evening so hard. If I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times, right? Uh, that's, that's not good, so we're going to hurt other people. Guys, we're also not going to grow and change. Remember, sin shame is a mercy of God designed to drive us to God so that we can experience and enjoy and exult in the sufficiency of the atonement and what Christ has done for us, but also so that God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, will be at work in us to put off and put on and to grow in Christ's likeness. When you shift the blame and we don't listen to sin shame, when it doesn't drive us to God, but we deflect it and push it elsewhere, we don't grow and change in addition to hurting other people. Okay? We're also going to, uh, as we experience no cleansing, as we experience no adequate covering for this, we get into the cycle of fig leaves and hiding, escapism, addictive behavior, finding other ways to redress this. We don't experience a solution and we make matters worse. We make matters worse. So let's, let's consider Genesis 3.15 in Genesis 3.21, Genesis 3.15, um, in, the, in the middle of pronouncing the curse, the Lord says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. He's speaking to the serpent. In Genesis 3.21, Then the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. What did Adam and Eve need for their shame problem? For their sin shame problem. For their their shame that was telling them the story about objective guilt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they needed God's forgiveness. They needed a better covering than fig leaves. They needed a. They needed a. Um, they needed God's solution for this, not a man-centered solution for this. Okay, both of these things, Genesis three fifteen and, and three twenty one, are they're not an end in themselves. They're they're pointing forward to the solution for our guilt. Right. So the was that another head scratch? Oh no, fixing a microphone. There's a shedding of blood. This first covering that was made, this is whispering of gospel reality. An animal died in order for a garment of skin to be made. And then there was a covering, a much longer lasting covering. Now this is a shadow pointing forward to the one who would die to make a permanent covering for our sin. Okay, And, and this, this snake crusher that's going to come, this one who's going to crush the serpent's head, this is, this is pointing forward to the, the work that Jesus Christ accomplishes through his death and his resurrection. His heel is bitten. He dies. And the debt for sin is paid. But payment was fully accepted. He was raised up and the serpent's head is crushed. The real problem of our real guilt has a real solution in the real person of Jesus Christ and the real death and resurrection. Does that make sense? Okay. 
So they needed God to intervene by doing what they could not. Okay, Because we, this is what Kelly said a little bit ago, all of our solutions cannot, cannot deal with the objective reality of our guilt. Right? You can't fix it. We need God to intervene and do what we could not. So that means we need to admit our need for God's solution when we see our objective guilt. So let's let's go into a little um, bit of a, a further discussion on sin, shame here in our last few questions. Okay, we we often err by not listening to our sin, shame. Remind me now, based on our discussion, why is it important to believe and respond to sin, shame? Why is it important to say, yes, that's right, and then to respond to it? It's based on the objective reality of true guilt. Yes. Yes. Failing to hear it and agree with it and respond to it will be a failure to address the actual reality of our guilt. So so let's... Take this out a little further. Remind me again. How is sin, shame a good thing or a mercy used by God? Don? Were you following me? No. Were you? There I go joking again. See? Yeah, you know what? We we have the ability to sort of um, cauterize our conscience, don't we? And uh, sin shame has a unique way of tenderizing it, doesn't it? So, so when you are laid bare and exposed, and when the reality of your sin is seen, and that that undoes what we've been doing when we habituate sin or when we grow comfortable with it. We, we sear our conscience and God in his mercy says, no, I'm going to do some work to remind you of your need. Tenderize that heart. Tenderize that conscience. That's one of the ways that it's a mercy from God. Drives us to him. It becomes one of the things that the Holy Spirit uses to change us and grow us and sanctify us. God is passionate about your sanctification. If you belong to Him, you didn't just get a, a get-out-of-hell-free card, right? He purchased you, He sealed your future glorification, and He is zealous for your sanctification. He's passionate about your sanctification. And, and as we slide into being comfortable with our sin, he, He's glad to tenderize our conscience and help us experience the reality of sin shame so that we can grow and change. But let's not miss this. It's a mercy from God because it leads to a sweet joy and sweet satisfaction as we exult in His mercy and what Christ has done for us. 
oh my goodness. So when you, when you are acutely aware of the reality of your guilt, your shame, your nakedness, you've been laid bare and exposed and you're totally unpresentable, and God says, you're mine. And I'll do for you what you could never do on your own. Yes, you are guilty. I'll take it upon myself and I'll die for you. No, you are not righteous, but I will take it upon myself and I'll be righteousness for you and I'll credit it to you. And, and now, when we believe that and we turn to Christ, it results in worship, it results in joy for the Christian. So let's consider two texts um, real quickly. Um, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 through 28. I'm going to read these both quickly. Hebrews 9, verses 24 through 28, and then I'm going to jump over and read a section in, in uh, 1, John through sec, uh, 1 John 1 and 2. So Hebrews 9, beginning at verse 24. Oh, I jotted down the wrong text, I'm sorry. Um, I want to see 19, I want to read 19 through... 22. So it's. Nope, now I'm feeling ashamed because I got it wrong again. It is 9, 24 through 28. Chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ did not enter a man made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way. The way the high priest that um, enters the most holy place every year with the blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So I'll, let me let's keep that in mind. I'm going to read 1 John chapter 1 verses 8 through 1 John 2 verse 2. John says if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but also the sins of the world. So we have in Hebrews the once-for-all sacrifice for all sins where the wrath of God is permanently satisfied. And in 1 John, we see, we see that this righteous one, who is the atoning sacrifice, he's the propitiation, meaning he dealt with our sins. He, he is our defense with the Father. He stands between us and God, advocating for us, so that when, when the reality of your guilt prompts the subjective feeling of sin-shame, and you turn to Christ and look to Him in repentant faith, 
There you see him between you and the Father saying, paid for it, paid for it, payment in full. My blood takes care of that guilt. My righteousness functions as their requirement to be righteous. Do you understand that? This is the solution. This is how we experience the removal of our sin shame by remembering that the guilt, the objective reality of our guilt was removed at the cross. Right? The objective reality of our guilt is removed at the cross. And when we in faith look to Christ now, we lead our subjective feeling of shame in behind the truth that the guilt has been dealt with. The sin has been atoned for. And this is this is the solution for sin shame. So real quickly, there's a there's a, a, a diagram down there. This this may be helpful in thinking about this. Um, in learning to spot and identify, how do we know that we're on the right path in our beliefs and thinking? Sometimes I I end up working backwards because I've practiced thinking the wrong way so so uh, many times. And and here's here's something that can help us see what it what it looks like when we do or do not respond in a biblical way to the reality of our our shame. So when guilt is a reality. It produces sin, shame, which is a subjective feeling. And we can typically respond in, in one of two ways. We can respond with legalistic, man-centered solutions. So fig leaves and hiding. And we're going to see oftentimes certain outward responses that accompany that. Like anger, self-loathing, withdrawal, criticism of self or others, works-based righteousness, persistent depression, things like that. We could go back to the chart on the first page. Or we could respond in a gospel, Christ-centered way with confession and repentance and faith in the sufficiency of what Christ has done. So when that sin-shame starts to tell the truth of our guilt, we respond with faith in Christ. And when we look to Him, our outward responses can be humility and joy, and we can be growing in a peace with this, We'll be worshiping, we'll be delighting in Christ. We'll be less apt to be critical towards others, more apt to be merciful towards others when we're enjoying the mercy that God has given us. I hope this is a helpful start. So um, really, really good news for the reality of guilt. Um, I, uh, a, a couple uh, Last week, one of my sons came in and said, Dad, I just feel awful. I said, tell me why, buddy. Um, and he told me what he did, and I said, oh, this is great. I'm glad you feel bad about that, buddy. But let me tell you why it's good news. Your real guilt has a real solution, and you know who that is, don't you? And, and we get to lead our hearts in the truth of saying it's already been taken care of and exult in Christ. Next week we'll talk about, um, we'll talk about uh, provoked shame. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that those who put their hope in you will never be put to shame. Thank you, Lord, that you put an end to the objective reality of our guilt and that you give us the means through faith in you to subdue and set aside the subjective reality of our shame. And, and Lord, we, we are so thankful for all that you've done for us to, to look on us in our unpresentable and defiled state, but make us presentable to you as we're in Christ, as much as we're united with Christ. 
Lord, we pray for your help in learning to identify and respond to shame rightly. And we pray that you would be honored more and more in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Youth, it was nice to have you today.